0: This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Turn to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to be hanging out for the majority of our evening. A um, few other places, but ultimately we're just going to be walking down through that chapter. And as you're turning, I just want to let you in on a little story that happened this weekend. Friday and I uh, went to a San Diego Soccer's game. Anyone gone to see the San Diego Soccer's before? Yeah? Yes? Yeah, you were there. We, we saw each other. It was both of our first times, maiden voyage, to the San Diego Soccer game. I just want to tell you a little commercial for the San Diego Soccer's. It's amazing. Right? It's six on six, no out of bounds, no offsides, it's fast-paced. It's like hockey and soccer had a baby, and it's a cute baby. And let me just tell you. I mean, this this it's amazing. We was like two fights happen. I'm like, this is so entertaining. Um, so I'm a fan, I'm a San Diego soccer fan. I just got a tattoo right here. So um I'm I'm full full in, but we, we went on Friday night because Zoe, my 10-year-old daughter's team. Uh, man, I feel old saying that. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter's team got invited to go on the field, and, and it was really cool to watch. And so I took Jubilee, our 7-year-old, and I coached her soccer team. And I'm like, this is going to be great, right? They're going to just be amped watching professional soccer players. Landon Donovan, who is the, has the most scores out of all MLS history in America, right, uh, is on the San Diego soccer team. And if you didn't know that, right, so just for that, just to get to go and see him play, score scored like half their goals. They're like 14 and two right now or something crazy like that. Anyways, enough of the commercial. It was awesome. And I'm like, this is gonna be great for my girls. They're gonna see like real soccer. Um, not that like six and seven year old YMCA soccer is not real soccer, but you know what I'm saying. And sure enough, we're driving home and my daughters are stoked. And they're like pumped because Saturday's game day. So they're like, dad, tomorrow's our day, like, man, I can't wait, I'm going to score more goals than I ever had before, they've never scored a goal, um, I'm like, great, good goal, um, so they, they're like, they're just pumped, and so we show up Saturday morning, right, we're ready to go, Shin guards on, got their jersey, and then this, like, this reality hits me, I'm like, these are six and seven-year-old soccer players at the YMCA, we don't even have a practice. We just show up at the games on Saturdays. (laughs) And it was just the contrast both is both was arena soccer, but the the, the way things played out. Uh, I mean you guys have seen little kids soccer, right? They just kinda they just kinda hover around the ball and they move from side to side and things like that. We have like we have like four girls on our team who have never played soccer in their life before. There's like this really tiny, tiny precious girl named Lolo. Oh, she's so sweet. Um and <laughs> this poor girl. This whole like team, like the seven-year-olds are running down the field and stuff like that, and she just looks like wide-eyed, and before they even get there, she's like kicks one. And just stands there and just run right by her. The ball's not even close to her. She's just like, oh, I did my job, and um, and I'm like into it because I just saw the soccer. So I'm just like, I- I'm just like yelling at the team. I'm like, you guys can do it. Come on! And um, and I'm just and I'm just looking at this. And I'm like, wow, what what a gap, what a difference. And and I'm thinking about the power of practice. The The thousands and thousands of hours that these different soccer players have put into this different sport. And it shows on the field. And the reason I bring that up is I think oftentimes in Christianity, we can look at the life of Jesus. Um, You might even look at other Christians you know and be like, wow. Wow. Dude, there's like Landon Donovan over there, and I'm over here, and I'm just like six and seven-year-old YMCA arena rec soccer Christian, and, and there is this dangerous game we can play of just being like, I, it's impossible for me to get there. That, that's out of my reach. I'm not built for that. And the, the problem with that mindset is that's not the story that Jesus lays out. And, and, and I know what you're thinking. It's easy to read the Gospels and be like, well, of course Jesus lived that beautiful, meaningful, influential, world-changing life. He's God, right? Cheater. Uh, the, the problem with that is that's actually a first-century heresy. Uh, because to say that he's God so he was able to do all these things doesn't take into consideration, which which is true. He's fully God. He's also fully man. And not only did Jesus say that you can do the same things that he did, he actually told his disciples, you can do greater things than I did. And I'm curious if there's anyone in this room who actually believes that, including myself. Now, we might agree with him intellectually, but it's been a minute since I've raised someone from the dead. I just need to be honest with you. You know, the list of blind people that are now seeing, it's pretty slim. And so there, after a while, you kind of settle into this life where, like, that's cool, but I'm good here. And that's not the invitation of Jesus. Remember, if a couple, the last couple weeks, Wesley, what I taught a couple weeks ago, we talked about the invitation of Jesus is into apprenticeship to him. And apprenticeship doesn't look like, man, you're the the master, I'm the student, and I'll always stay that way. The idea is become like the master. Do what he did. Do, become like him. And in this point in our series, what we're talking about is the foundational work of apprenticeship to Jesus looks like just simply being with him. But But again, the kind of elusive nature of it is we can just feel like this gap, and we think, it, it's far off, but we we lose this key idea that practice has to be involved. It is a lifetime committed to following after Jesus that shapes us slowly as the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and community begin to press against us and move us and mold us more into his image. Uh, John Mark Comer a pastor in Portland had this quote that was revolutionary for me. Um, and I hope it is for you too. I've mentioned that I think a couple times here before, but he says this, we cannot expect the life of Jesus without adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. And, and I think it's like my daughter's watching professional soccer. I want that, but I don't know if I'm gonna put in the practice to get there. And so the invitation of Jesus is not simply desire or belief in the intellectual sense, it's practice. Would you come along with me, walk with me, follow me, do as I did, go and be sent out? And that's when our lives begin to be transformed, when we begin to practice these goals of a a student or a disciple and a rabbi. And if you remember, there's three simple goals of any apprentice or any disciple of a rabbi. It is to be with their rabbi. It is to become like their rabbi and to do what they did and Jesus and so again this foundational piece for us is how do we be like Jesus how do we practice being like Jesus and here's the key and it's pretty simple is if we want to be with Jesus we need to see how Jesus was with the Father let me say that again when we observe how Jesus was with the Father that is our greatest indicator of how we are to be with Jesus and luckily for us i was thinking about this recently isn't it amazing That as significant as Jesus' death and resurrection are, that is not the the massive portion of the Gospels, just textually. It's his life. Why, as important as his death and resurrection are, why would the Gospel writers include so much of his life if not to say, this is for you. Look how Jesus lived. Look how Jesus was with his Father. Look how he loved. Look how he stepped out in the power of the Spirit. And this is is what we're gonna be diving into the next few weeks, are what are the practices Jesus had in being with his Father. Um, And so we're gonna be looking at some of these habits, some of these uh, patterns and rhythms that Jesus had that revealed his intimacy with his Father. And we're gonna let them challenge us and press against us and hopefully move us towards a new intimacy with Jesus. Uh, And so the first one we're gonna be talking about tonight uh, has to do uh, with with getting away and spending time with Jesus, and, and I, I just want to say this: this this should not make us be like, "Oh, this is just sweet, precious moments, hanging out with Jesus, warm and fuzzy." And 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 it does, I man. Being with Jesus is nothing like it. But I actually would like to propose to you tonight that if we don't, our lives will. Drastically suffer. Like this is a serious matter in our formation and our discipleship. If we do not know how to, or if we neglect being with Jesus, we will see. And just, just one example that I'm going to give you guys tonight comes from, from my world, the world of pastoring. Uh, so this, this guy um, named Howard Hendricks, who was one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, with a few other professors, began to do a study on pastors who had had affairs, And so they took 246 males who had affairs in about a two-year period, and they sat down and they interviewed them for the point of seeing why. What was the common themes, the common patterns within these men that led them to this? And I'm just gonna read you, and there's tons of trends, interesting things, but there was only three things that they discovered that was true of all 246 men. Listen to this. Number one thing they found is none of the men was involved in any kind of real personal accountability. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the power of confession, that confession happens when we feel safe in the grace of God, that we can actually become honest and human amongst our brothers and sisters. And there's was, there was no, there none of that. There's no space to be human. There's no confession, no accountability. Uh, the second thing they discovered, which we're talking about tonight, is each of the men had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, and worship. That, that blows my mind that all 246 of them, when asked, how are you spending time with Jesus, every single one of them said it's non-existent. Like, that just isn't coincidental for me. Like, there's something about that that just lays weight on the significance of this practice of of needing to be with Jesus. And the third thing that's common in all 246 says, without exception, each of the 246 had been convinced that that sort of fall would never happen to me, quote. Everyone was convinced, I will never do that. And other than that, there's only two things that were across the board. They had no space to be real and to be human and to confess and be accountable. And they had lost the practice of being with Jesus. So, and the reason I say that is not to invoke guilt or fear, but just to talk about this is a serious, this is a serious thing to tackle. How how do we do it? Because one thing to be like, okay, I agree with you, I should be with Jesus, but how? And again, going back to this, well then, how is Jesus with the Father? And that's what we're diving into Their Very first thing tonight, we're going to be looking at is Luke chapter 5, 15 through 16. And imagine this. It says, yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. So imagine this. Jesus is on the scene. He's, he's got tons of momentum and popularity. And it says the crowds, cities were coming out and bombarding him. Have you ever had those seasons of life? You just feel like everything is piling up and the needs of the people you love, the boss that you have, the, the professor's deadlines he's giving you are just just immense and they're just gathering and around you. And so immediately you think that Jesus would just be revealed as the ultimate time manager. But listen to what it says Jesus' responses to that sort of pressure. Verse 16 says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That was Jesus' solution. Crowds, success, progress, promotions, momentum often would go away often will go to the lonely place. And this is the pattern that he has set up for us. Now, and I I know we can resonate with this because we've never lived in such a fast-paced culture with so many demands, so much pressure that makes us feel like how can I, how can I even have time to be with God? And according to Jesus, how can you have time not to? Uh, There's gonna be a quote on your screen. Just something that I've kind of come to realize as I've studied this week. And and this is what it says. When the needs of the people we love become more important than our need for the God we love, both suffer. When our need for the God we love become more important than the needs of the people we love, both flourish and so do we. I've seen this so many times in my life. There's an immediate need for my children, my wife, my ministry, a phone call, an email, it's pressing. And I look ahead of my day or my week and I know that I have some time set apart to be with Jesus. And immediately I begin to rationalize, well, God will understand if I'm doing his work. God must want me to handle this, put out this fire, deal with this relational element. And what happens over time, I've seen it happen recently in my life, is all of a sudden, my wife, my kids, my ministry, my preaching, my sleep, my dreams, my energy plummets. And so does my relationship with God. But when I trust God enough to turn my phone off, to wake up a little bit earlier, to not respond to the text message within the five seconds I get it, and I just stop and I go to that place with God, what happens is that my capacity, my energy, and ultimately my heart is more in the game. And this isn't like, wow, great discovery, Benji. This is just simply doing what Jesus did. And there's a there's a word that we see in Luke five that we're also gonna be tracing throughout Mark one, and it's this word. Eramos. Can you say a remos? Say it, come on, a I want this to be drilled into your imagination tonight, because we're just going to be circling around this word tonight. The the Greek word eramos is that word lonely place. It's also the word for wilderness. It's the word for desert. It's the word for quiet place. It's the word that we see used all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament alone uses it 48 times and significantly more in the Old Testament let me just give you a few ways how this word Eremos is used, and then we're going to see it traced through Mark chapter 1. So, the word Eremos is used in the New Testament, talking about where John the Baptist began his ministry. We also find Jesus in the Eremos and Satan in the Eremos. Uh, demons were cast to the Eremos. It's also where Moses lifted up the snake to heal his people, it's where the Israelites ate manna, um, it's where Jesus went in preparation for Passion Week. It's where the burning bush happened for Moses. The Eremos is where we received the Torah. The Eremos is where Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to salvation. Um, It's used to describe Israel being barren and where hearts can be hardened in Hebrews 3. It's this fascinating word because it seems completely paradoxical. It's where we would would understand naturally, this is a desert. Nothing happens here. Nothing grows here. It's the Ramos. It's dry and lonely and desolate. And at the same time, you see this word woven throughout Scripture that this is where God shows up in some of the most profound ways. For Jesus, for Moses, for David, for Elijah, This is where God meets his people. What a fascinating reality, this idea of getting away to this place. So let's, again, go back to Mark chapter 1. We're going to trace this through and see exactly what God is up to here. This is Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9. This is after John the Baptist has began his ministry, and this is the first time we see Jesus show up. And by the way, Mark is what we believe the first gospel written, and by gospel, it's the biography of Jesus' life. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel was written um, from Peter's perspective, and John Mark is writing for Peter. We'll even see this in this text, there's a lot of details that only Peter would have known. And so this is our introduction to Jesus, and really the first gospel that was circulated. In verse 9 it says, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I mean, what a moment. I mean, the heavens are opening. God is speaking. The Spirit's descending as a dove. I mean, this is incredible. And listen to what happens next in verse 12. At once... That same spirit who gently landed on him sent him out into the Aremos. And he was in the wilderness. He was in the Aremos 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. And what a fascinating start to his ministry. The Holy Spirit comes, speaks over him, and you immediately would just read the story and be like, it's go time, right? Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's start healing people. Let's start preaching. It's not what the Spirit of God does. He immediately leads him to the Aremos, to this deserted, lonely place where he encounters Satan 40 days after fasting. And, and if you've ever heard this taught, like, like myself growing up, even teaching it, I always taught from this place of, man, poor Jesus, and what a jerk Satan is, right? Shows up, and Jesus is at his weakest, he's hangry, he hasn't had any food. I mean, this is not good for Jesus, and luckily he's victorious. Freeze that thought for a second, because I don't know if that holds up with the rest of Mark chapter 1's use of the word eremos. So Jesus shows up on the scene, goes to Capernaum, goes to a synagogue, and immediately heals a demon-possessed man in a synagogue, and everyone's just like, what just happened? So the entire city's just buzzing. It's the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to be, like, exercising demons on the Sabbath. Apparently that's something that happens the next day. Um, But Jesus just bypasses that tradition, Not, not the law, but the tradition they held around the Sabbath. And then after that, uh, Simon Peter gets word that his mother-in-law is sick, apparently he had a good relationship with his mother-in-law, and says, hey, Jesus, can you come heal her? And so they leave uh, the synagogue, they go to his house, or his mother-in-law's house, Jesus, and this is where we're going to pick up our story, Jesus heals his mother-in-law, and it just gets crazy. So Mark 1, verse 29 says this, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus, listen to this, all the sick and demon-possessed. What a circus. The whole, town, the whole town gathered at the door. I mean, this is like taco stand on Sunday. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Do you hear the word here? He, he did he did a lot. He did healed many, cast out many, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to the oremos. He goes back to the wilderness. Day one on the job, and he's already taking a break. You guys know those workers? Come on. Some of them, that's some of you. Like, oh, gosh, that was so hard, first day at Starbucks. Anyways, so Jesus, first day on the job, first day of ministry, is going back to the Eremos, right, where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for them, and they found him, and they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, think, think about what you'd be expecting in this moment as the original audience. Jesus replied, I was like, let's go get busy. There's more people to heal. Let's go back to Capernaum. There's momentum. Let's get a YouTube channel going. Let's start some marketing around this thing. We have success on our side. And Jesus, looking at them after spending time in the Aremos, says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages For that is why I have come. I mean, how counterintuitive is that response? Wait, aren't there more people waiting to get healed? Aren't there, isn't there more you could do? Don't you already have momentum? Isn't there already something good going on? But one of the things you see Jesus have in this moment is supernatural clarity. He's not driven by need or success or opportunity. He's driven by mission and vision from his Father. And it's powerful. And, and, and the disciples are just kind of bewildered at this point. And it's just, just a couple of things I want to just draw to our attention is that this pattern that Jesus has of going away to the Eremos is all the time. Huge success, huge momentum, a lot of people getting saved, a lot of people getting healed, and then he's gone. Back to be with the Father. And I just have have to wonder, and I'm actually becoming pretty convinced that maybe Jesus wasn't at his weakest point at the end of 40 days. Maybe he was at his strongest. Maybe that's where he drew his strength from, not just for his first day of ministry, but for the next three years. And he knew, if I don't go back to that place again and again and again, I will not accomplish the will of the Father. And can I just be blunt with you? You're not stronger than Jesus. I'm not, I don't have more perseverance. I don't have more strength than Jesus. And if Jesus needed that rhythm of consistently going to the lonely, solitary place to be with his father, just maybe I do. It's the, it's the invitation of our rabbi to come and follow his, his pattern. So uh, three things I would, I would like to kind of lay before you that we see, and, and there's probably more, but three, three, sorry, three things we see in Mark chapter 1. That is specific about the Eremos. Uh, number one, it's a place of simplicity. Number two, it's a place of solitude. And number three, it's a place of silence. This is where we go in our rhythm, in the pattern that we have with Jesus. Uh, so, number one, let's talk about simplicity. Now, simplicity is so crucial because simplicity is what reveals what we really need. And and let's just be honest. Simplicity in our world, just because geographically where we live, you do not stumble into simplicity. We live in, in, in this just utopia of excess, right? I want a cup of coffee. Which third wave coffee shop do I want to try out of the dozen on Coast Highway? I want to go surfing. Which world-class wave do I want to surf up and down the coast, right? I mean, there is this, this constant... Like what. What do I want to choose today? Let me look in my closet at the 100 articles of clothing that I have laid before me. We Simplicity for us cannot be stumbled into. It has to be intentional. Now, the reason I say that is there are parts of the world where simplicity is not an option. You have one meal a day if you're lucky. You have... You have, might have clean water. You might have a second outfit. And simplicity is a way of life. And the oramos is always at hand. And you wonder why when you travel to some of these countries, the the, the awareness of the spiritual realm is so thick. It's because simplicity is at hand. The oramos is where they live. And for us, I, I, I'm just curious, I wonder if the excess and the noise and the just the sheer amount of what's going on in our lives actually stunts our ability to actually hear and know and experience the depth of who God is. And so let, let's look at John the Baptist's life. I love John the Baptist. Let's go to Mark. Let's go start in verse 4. It says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the Eremos, in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. I mean, this guy's as popular, if not more popular than Jesus at this moment. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, this is the description of John that we have. John and the Eremos, right, wore clothes made by camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Sounds like he'd fit into Encinitas a little bit, but you I mean, the guy, <laughs> the description culturally, what we see about John the Baptist is simplicity. He didn't have robes, which would represent authority, didn't eat clean food, was living off the land. He had, he had nothing. And I, and I can't help but think that as many times as Mark refers to the Aramos in chapter one, his introduction to it is it's the land of simplicity. It's where there's not a lot of excess, but God seems to be in excess there. His presence seems to be in excess. And so this week, I began to start thinking about my my rhythm of going to the realms of my own life. And I just thought about simplicity. And and I just super simply said, God, where do you want me to practice simplicity in my life? And, And I know this is not like super radically spiritual. All I heard the Holy Spirit say is, just drink one cup of coffee a day. Um, I only drink decaf anyways, so it wasn't like I needed the caffeine, but my world essentially is at coffee shops, right? It's where I study for sermons, where I meet with people. It's where I'm kind of in the city and meeting people. And so consciously, I just said, I'm like, okay, um, I'm going to kind of route my day just thinking I'm just going to have one cup of coffee a day. And a couple things interesting happened. One, I immediately started realizing I have a few extra dollars in my pocket at the end of the week. Maybe that can go to something that's of kingdom significance other than my nice almond milk latte that I get, right? Maybe there's something that God wants me to invest that into. I'm like, cool, that's that's the goal. That's the importance. But something else happened as a result of it that I think might actually be even of greater influence in my life is simply the simplicity that I was intentional about drew my attention consistently back to God. I found myself in prayer all throughout the day because my rhythm was disrupted because I wasn't just gonna go and spend $5 here, $5 there, sit down there, spend money here. I was constantly thinking about, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? And it would lead me into prayer. I found myself, even after hearing about the horrific tragedy um, that happened in New Zealand with the loss, the, the just the horrific violent act towards the, the mosque, just praying for the Muslim people who are just so hurting right now. And, and, and it sounds weird. I'm like, how does those two things connect? But for me, it did. There are moments in my days that I was reminded to pray. Kind of similar to fasting, when you just feel hungry, it draws you into prayer. Simplicity, when I want something that's trivial, it points me towards what's eternal. Um, and it's been, even in the few days that I've been trying, it's been pretty radical. In my life. I just realized I don't practice simplicity very much. But it's really the first clue we have into the Eremos. Uh, and second thing we, we see about the Eremos is this idea of solitude. Uh, maybe the most blatant thing we see about the Ramos is no one's there. Right? It's where Jesus goes there. No one goes to the Eremos, right? It's just it's this place where you're like, man, I would much rather be in the city or by the sea. I'd much rather be doing this. And Jesus is like, this is where I need to be. And some of you guys are introverts, and you're like, yes, Solitude is the greatest of spiritual practices. Um, And and I'll say this. There are some of you guys, and solitude is your jam. You love solitude. You're just like, yeah, this is is good. Um, Some of you guys can't stand it because you're extroverts. You need people. And frankly, the thought of you being alone with your own thoughts freaks you out. This is a practice not prescribed based on personality type. It doesn't matter what Enneagram number you are, okay? This is for, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, there should be a rhythm of solitude in your life. Now, now let me bring some clarity here uh, because oftentimes it's easy to think about solitude and be like, and attach it to either loneliness or isolation. And they're very different. Um, a matter of fact, we see this actually being done even in community. Mark 6, 30-31, after the apostles go sent out two by two, the seven go and to heal people, cast out demons, they're doing what Jesus did, right? They're being good apprentices, come back and reported to Jesus all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come with me to the Eremos. So it's not some place where we go to be isolated or lonely. It's a place we go to get away, to ultimately become present to God and who he is in our life. I love what Richard Foster says in his book, Celebration of Disciplines. He says, loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. I think that's huge. We, we go to the Aramos, we practice solitude, not to become aware of our emptiness, but to be filled to the fullness of God's presence uniquely in that place. Um, another quote I came across this week that, um, is a book called Leading on Empty. Um, I hadn't read it in a few years, but there's a pastor named Wayne Cordero in Hawaii who um, had two pretty massive burnouts. Not not moral failures, but his burnouts. He just ran so hard that he burned out. And these are reflections on what happened in his life. And one of the big revelations for Wayne Cordero was his practice of silence and solitude. And he writes about the idea because he found himself drifting. As he was getting burnt out, he started wanting to become isolated. But it was actually something that should have been prevented by solitude. And this is what he writes about the two. This is, I think is fascinating. He says, there's a world of difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. This is, this is huge, isn't this? Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Isn't that funny? When we neglect solitude... We crave isolation. And they are so different. When we go alone, away from the, the noise and the needs and the people to be present to God, there, there is a wholeness and a mending that happens. And just speaking personally, that allows us not to want to hide and retreat and to isolate from people. Third thing about the Aremos I wanted to leave with you guys is is silence. So we talked about simplicity, which reveals what we really need. Solitude, which reveals who we really need. And silence, which reveals what and who we need to hear from. Um, Man, I'm, I'm convinced we have never lived in a noisier cultural moment a noisier point in history than right now. And I'm just talking about like sound waves hitting your ears, right? I mean, I have toddlers, believe me, I understand that. But I'm talking about just just the the chaos and the clutter and the pace and the noise and the distractions and the screens that are just all the time coming at us. And, and And I'm just so curious as I talk to so many people, like what's it like to hear God? Maybe it's not that God's not talking, maybe it's we just can't hear him. Over the noise. One of my favorite stories in scriptures points to this, this, this illusion of how God speaks to us. And, and I want to say, this isn't only how God speaks to us. Sometimes he gets our attention by knocking us off a horse or, or just totally boldly. But there's oftentimes that it's a little bit more quiet than that. Listen to what happens with Elijah, the most famous prophet in Israel's history. As he's on the run, he's depressed, he's in this chaotic state in his life, goes to this mountain that God draws him to, Theoremos. No one's there. And it says that there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. There's this violent wind, and he's not in the wind. It says, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, I love this, came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, what an existential question that is, right? What a profound question. You almost feel like God is rattling Elijah. He's just like, Shh, listen. And I get this as a dad. When I need my kids to move, my voice gets louder and louder and louder. Let's go. It's time to go. Don't hit your sister. Each I mean these things get but if I really, really need them to hear me, I pull them aside, I sit them in their room, and I look at their eyes and I whisper. say, "Jubilee." That's not, that's not how we're going to treat people. Zoe. Let's not, let's not talk like that. Vienna, do you know who you are? Do you know how valuable you are? When I really want their attention, I whisper. And I, and I just, I'm thinking about all the moments in my life when I could just sense the Father just want, I just want to speak to you. I just want to whisper to you. I want to have conversations with you. But my life is so loud and noisy. It's is not God's fault. But because I have failed to practice this principle of going to the Aramos, going to the, the quiet place, the silent place, the desolate place, that I long to hear this whisper. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors. He's a, he was a pastor around the 50s and writes some incredible works. This, this is something he's talking about, something he writes about when, he, when thinking about silence and solitude. I just think is profound. It's a little bit of a long quote, so stick with me. It's it's, it's really good. This is what he says. Retire from the world each day to some private spot, even if it be only the bedroom. For a while, I retreated to the furnace room, as as you understand, for want of a better place. Stay in the secret place, my love, stay in the secret place till the surrounding noises begin to fade out of your heart. And a sense of God's presence envelops you. Listen for the inward voice, capital V, till you learn to recognize it. Stop trying to compete with others. Give yourself to God and then be what and who you are without regard to what others think. Learn to pray inwardly every moment. After a while, you can do this even while you work. Read less but more of what is important to your inner life. I love these, these last lines. Never let your mind remain scattered for very long. Call home your roving thoughts. Gaze on Christ with the eyes of your soul. I mean, what rich, rich wisdom. And here's someone talking at a much simpler time. There's no internet. Right? There's no freeways. And he writes as if he's living in 2019. Right? Other than the furnace room. I don't know what that is. But, but one of the things that really sticks out to me about this quote is it seems to be the thing that distracts him the most is his tendency to care about what others think of him. What other people are thinking of him. And he says, listen, you have, to, you have to bring those roving thoughts back home to Jesus, to set your eyes on Christ. And, and I just want to come to you guys. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I, um, I'm, I'm, Wednesday is when I normally study and prepare for these messages. Um, and Fridays is normally my, my Sabbath. And so Friday, having prepared for this, I'm like, I'm going to go practice some silence and solitude, right? I, I went surfing at pipes, and it's a beautiful day. I'm like, I'm going to put my board in the car. I'm going to go back, look at the ocean, and I'm, I'm just going to be present to God. I'm just going to, like, silence and solitude. Got it. Um, so I do it. I get comfortable. I go out to the beach, and I'm just, and I, I literally, I'm just like, okay, five minutes, undistracted attention on Jesus, Guys, I could, literally could not make it a minute. I was timing myself without some thought coming into my mind and me following that thought somewhere. It was, it, I was shocked. I'm like sitting there in God's beautiful creation and all of a sudden I'm sitting there. I'm like, all right, Jesus, you yeah, have my full undivided attention. I'm quoting Psalm 23. I'm like, the Lord is my shepherd. And then it's like, dang it, I forgot to send that email. Oh, no, no, I'm back. Okay, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, look at that left. Oh my gosh, so good. <laughs> Lord is my shepherd. Man, the tide's really low right now. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm like laughing to myself. I'm like, come on, Benji, like get it together. Like you are so bad at this thing. And, and, and I just realized in this moment, I'm like, man, I have a long way to go. I'm the YMCA rec soccer <laughs> team person. And I want to be on the San Diego Soccers, right? I, that's where I want to go. And I just, I'm just going to confess, I'm not there, guys. This is not like, hey, guys, look, you know, come follow me as I follow Christ. No, don't do that, guys. You can do better than me. Uh, let's, let's go be like Jesus as he's present to the Father. And so we're going to do something unique tonight. We're going to end the sermon Um, without, without the worship team and, and and maybe, you know, worship team, we actually have some time tonight maybe we could end with some worship, but before we do that, before they come up, I would love to spend two minutes, and I dare you, (laughs) oh, I'm not going to ask, but I dare, would you, would we just spend a couple minutes, complete silence, um, and by complete silence, we'll probably hear some kids or a car drive by, a phone vibrate, someone's going to drop their keys. It always happens. But would we just spend a couple minutes in just silence? And I, part of me is I'm like, man, we should just do this more often in church. And could we? And if you're like, well, what do I do? And here's, here's the thing, and just to draw a little bit of compare contrast, um, this is not... Uh, kind of the current trend, Eastern thought of the day of just emptying your mind. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more about focusing your mind. I always encourage if you're going to meditate, uh, focus primarily on scripture, maybe on the on a vision of Jesus sitting, seeing high and lifted up. Um, you can do Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But whatever, whatever it is, Um, This isn't a time for you to imagine something. It's time for you to focus on the real Jesus. And as we do this for the next couple minutes, um, my my hope is it stirs something in you. Maybe you're like me and you're like, wow, I suck at this and I really need to practice this. And maybe for you, you're just going to feel refreshed. But whether you feel refreshed or whether you feel like, man, I need to grow in this, let's grow in it. Let's press into it. This is not about a sermon. Oh, I heard about it. I'm good. No, if we don't practice this, then we, essentially we've missed the point. If this doesn't happen on Tuesday, if this isn't happening a month from now, then, then really we're wasting our time here. This is about our habits, our rhythms, that we begin to do what Jesus did. Be with God. So I'm going to stop talking. I want you to spend a couple minutes in God's presence, focusing our attention on him.